study of his word today. Father, you are so good to us. You're so good to have sent your son for us. I pray today as we meditate on what Isaiah tells us about who your son is, that our hearts will be filled to overflowing with gratitude and thankfulness and joy in you and in your son. Would you now, by your spirit, open our eyes and soften our hearts to the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the peoples. For today in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you who is Christ the Lord. That's what an angel announced in Luke chapter 2 to some very startled shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. And we notice that in this announcement, the angel not only announces good news, but he also tells the shepherds how they should respond. I bring you good news of great joy. Christmas is typically associated with joy, and rightly so. There's joy in special celebrations. There's joy in being with family. There's joy in giving and receiving gifts. But the joy that they provide is somewhat limited. Deep, lasting, abiding joy. Joy that is not dependent on circumstances. Joy that continues even when life is hard and confusing. Is not found in the activities of the Christmas season. It's found in the child who was born at the first Christmas. Joy is found in Jesus Christ. Which is why Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Our ability to find joy in Christ is dependent on our understanding of who He is. And so my hope this morning for us is to inflame our joy in Christ by reflecting on who He is. We do that by considering the four titles that Isaiah gives him in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where Jesus is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Before we look at these titles, let me quickly review the historical setting, what's happening in Isaiah chapter 9. The regional superpower of the day was Assyria, and just a little time before Isaiah started his ministry, a new Assyrian king came to the throne, and he began to expand his empire westward. Over the next several decades, the Assyrian empire was used by God to discipline his people. In 733 B.C., the Assyrians attacked and conquered the northern territory of Israel. This is reported in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29, which says, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came and captured Gilead and Galilee and the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. This is what Isaiah is referring to in chapter 9, verse 1, where he says, In the former times he, the Lord, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Eventually, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians would destroy the entire nation of Israel. 
But in 733 B.C., they only captured part of it, including Zebulun and Naphtali, which are in Galilee, and you can see on the map circled there in red. Isaiah is predicting that a time is going to come where that same region that had been attacked would be blessed by God in a special way. He says in verses 1 and 2, there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. The light, of course, is Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew quotes those two verses with reference to the ministry of Christ, most of which took place in the region of Galilee. During Isaiah's lifetime, the region of Galilee first and then later the entire nation of Israel fell to the Assyrians. But according to verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They will rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So, he's saying a day is going to come when God is going to bring joy to this nation, this part of the nation that one time had been in anguish. They will rejoice before the Lord with great joy, joy like a farmer has at the harvest, like a soldier has when he's dividing spoil after a battle. And the reason for this joy is given in the following three verses, each one that begins with the word for. So, verse 4 you're going to increase the joy of your people for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. In Judges chapter 6, in, before the battle against the Midianites, the Israelite army under leadership of Gideon was reduced from 32,000 to just 300. And the Lord did that so that after the Midianite oppressors were defeated, the Israelites would know that the Lord alone is the one who had brought them victory. And so it would be with this future deliverance from oppression that, the, that Isaiah is predicting here. God himself is going to free his people. He's going to break the yoke of the burden, I think they're the burden of sin, that was oppressing his people. That's one reason for joy. He would also bring joy because he would bring an end to all conflict, according to verse 5, for the boot of every uh, for every boot of a trampling warrior in the battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. In other words, God's going to usher in a time of complete and total peace where there's no longer any war. And how is this going to be accomplished? Who is going to be the agent of God's work in bringing deliverance from oppression and establishing peace on the earth? Isaiah tells us in verse 6, for to us, that is, for our benefit, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These titles are not actual names for Jesus. Rather, they describe who he is and how he benefits the people of God. And the more we understand and meditate on these descriptions of Christ, the more we'll have joy in Him. Most of you know me pretty well. You know that joy is not something that has come naturally in my life, it's something I've worked on. And when I'm joyful, it's because I'm finding joy in Christ. And so I hope this morning as we reflect on these titles, all of us will find joy in who He is. Jesus is first, according to Isaiah 9, 6, 
the wonderful counselor. Perhaps a better translation would be he is the wonder counselor because in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, Isaiah is using a noun, not an adjective. Therefore, he's not saying that his child will be wonderful, delightful, though that's certainly true. Rather, he's saying the child will be a wonder. Later in the book of Isaiah, the word wonder is used to describe the activities of God. Chapter 25, verse 1, O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will give thanks for Your name. For You have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. The word is also found in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Moses is talking about the miracle that God performed in parting the Red Sea so His people could escape from the Egyptian army. Who among the gods is like You, O Lord? Who is like You, majestic and holiness, awesome and glory, working wonders? So, a wonder is a miracle. A wonder is a supernatural act of God. And the child who's born for the benefit of his people is described as a wonder. That is, he himself is a supernatural being, and that means that his counsel must likewise be supernatural. When we hear the word counselor, what often comes to our minds is someone who gives advice. And the Hebrew word counselor can be used to mean that. However, it can also refer to someone who is planning his own course of action. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 14, where Isaiah is predicting the destruction that was going to befall the Assyrians. After God uses the Assyrians to discipline His people, He's going to destroy the Assyrians. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, surely just as I have intended, so it will happen. Just as I have planned or counseled, same Hebrew word, so it will stand, to break Assyria in my land, to trample him on my mountains. For the Lord of hosts has planned this. He's counseled this, and who can frustrate it? As we study Isaiah chapter 9, we need to ask, is Jesus Christ the child born for us? Is he a wonder of a counselor, giving advice to others, or a wonder of a planner? I think you could say he's both, but Isaiah seems to have in mind that he is a supernatural planner because the next verse says that the child will sit on David's throne, ruling over his kingdom, upholding it with righteousness and justice. So, this baby is a king. A king is involved in planning his own affairs more than he is in giving advice to others. King Jesus has plans for the world. King Jesus has plans for His church. And King Jesus has plans for the individual lives of His followers. In John chapter 21, after His resurrection, Jesus is with some of His disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and He's walking with Peter. The Apostle John's behind Him, and He's telling Peter, Peter, when you're older, you're going to be led away to a place you don't want to go. He's telling Peter, you're going to be executed as an older man. And Peter turns around and points to John who's following and says, what about him? <laughs> and Jesus says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus had plans for Peter's life. Jesus had plans for John's life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus has plans for your life. 
and for my life. He is the wonder counselor. And we're going to be able to follow Him with joy and with confidence when we remember that, that He is a supernatural, miraculous planner, which means everything He plans for us is perfectly wise, and everything He sets out to accomplish in our lives will surely come to pass. There's joy in following a Savior like that, one who is a wonder counselor. The second title given to Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9 is Mighty God. A child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Now, this title, Mighty God, is rather rare. It's only found a handful of times in the Old Testament, one of which is in the next chapter, Isaiah chapter 10, which says, now in that day the remnant of Israel those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return to the Lord, a remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. So we notice in these two verses there's a parallel expression between the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the mighty God. So in Isaiah chapter 10, the title Mighty God is applied to God the Father, and yet here in Isaiah chapter 9, the title Mighty God is applied to God the Son. And this is how uh, the New Testament refers to Jesus as well, with the same kind of uh, divine language. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9 says concerning Christ that in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's the child born to us, so He's a human being, and yet He's the mighty God. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is the mystery of the incarnation that we celebrate at the Christmas season. The eternal Son of God became a human being. Puritan author Thomas Charnock puts it like this, what a wonder it is that the two natures, human and divine, infinitely distant should be intimately united, that a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle, the thundering Creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. One of the implications of this is that God can fully understand all the struggles of life on earth from personal experience. Not, he doesn't just intellectually knows what human life is like. He's personally experienced. So, he knows what it's like to be hungry and to be tired, to be misunderstood, to be rejected. He even knows what it's like to be tempted to sin. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 15 says that Jesus can sympathize with us in our weakness because He has been tempted in all ways as we are. So, as God in the flesh, Jesus, the Son born to us, has experienced human weakness. However, He is at the same time the mighty God. The Hebrew word that's translated mighty is often used in military contexts. In Psalm chapter 24, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And who is the King of glory? the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. The Hebrew word 
can actually sometimes even be translated as warrior, as it is in Psalm 127. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, a mighty one, so are the children of one's youth. Isaiah is telling us that this infant, this son who was given to us is a warrior God, one who's ready for battle. At the end of his life, the Apostle Paul is writing to his disciple Timothy, and he uses a military image. He describes the Christian life like this. He calls on Timothy to suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So, Paul is likening the Christian life to being in a war. Does it ever feel like that? Does it ever feel like to you that you're in a spiritual battle? It does to me, and if it does to you, it's because we are. Every day, we're battling at least three fronts. We're battling against the world's value system, a system that's completely opposed to God. We got bombarded with messages to live for riches and pleasure and beauty and success and completely ignore eternity. Live for this life. That's the, the world's value system. Live for yourself. Don't think about anyone else. Don't think about eternity. We also battle against the lying schemes of Satan, who's constantly trying to turn our affections away from God and our confidence away from God. And worse than either of these external foes, there's one that's inside of us. We face an ongoing battle against our own selfishness. Peter warns against this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. There's anger and greed, pride, envy, lust, bitterness, self-centeredness, self-pity, discontentment. These are the kinds of sinful desires that are always waging war within us and against us. Even at Christmas time, we're supposed to be joyful and together. We find that there are all these little family frictions. Why? Because they're coming from the inside. In our often exhausting battle against the world, against the devil, against our own flesh, we quickly learn that these enemies are much stronger than we are. But they're not stronger than our warrior God, a child born to us, one who can completely sympathize with our weakness, is mighty in battle. And he will come to our aid whenever we're in dire straits, we're overwhelmed by the enemy, we craft him for help, and he comes to our aid. Third title given to Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9 is eternal father. As with mighty God, the title eternal father is one we expect to be applied exclusively to God the Father, but Isaiah uses it to describe the Son who is given to us. On the night before His death, Jesus is with His disciples. One of them says, Lord, show us the Father, to which He responds, have I been with you so long and you've not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. God the Father, God the Son, distinct as divine persons, share exactly the same divine nature, and included in that divine nature is fatherly love for the people of God. In his book entitled Praying, theologian J.I. Packer writes this, the biblical ideal of fatherhood blends authority, faithfulness, 
affection, care, discipline, long-suffering, and protection in a course of sustained love that aims always at the child's advance in strength and wisdom and maturity. That's the biblical ideal of fatherhood, though not the earthly reality. The reality is some people have bad fathers. Others have absent fathers. Nobody has a perfect earthly father. And so the best way to enjoy a father-child relationship with God is not by comparing an earthly father to God, but rather by meditating on what God's Word says about him as father. Here are three characteristics of the fatherhood of God. David says first in Psalm 103, verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Compassion is a word that re refers to warm emotional love. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15, this word is used that says, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? A mother has gentle, loving, tender concern for her infant, uh, nursing infant, and that same kind of tenderness is used to describe God's fatherly love for His children. As you approach God, you think of Him as being full of compassion for you. Then a second characteristic in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31, Moses says, in the desert, the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. The Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, and during that time, God carried them by providing everything they needed. His fatherly care met their daily needs. He gave them manna from heaven. He gave them water from a rock. He gave them quail from the sky. He protected them from their enemies. As a father, God is the faithful provider who carries his children through this life. Something else God does for his children is faithfully administer discipline. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 15, uh, verse 12, the Lord disciplines those he loves just as a father does the son that he delights in. Why do good earthly fathers discipline their kids? Because they want their children to become mature adults. And so it is with our Heavenly Father. He has a purpose for our lives. His purpose in a phrase from Romans chapter 8, verse 29, is He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what He's trying to do in all of our lives, make us look more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ. And sometimes that involves disciplining us when we are off the path or when we're not understanding things from His perspective, from the right, uh, uh, a biblical point of view. But His discipline is not intended to crush us, rather it is to perfect us. And it's not motivated from harsh anger, but by love. The Lord disciplines those He loves just like a father does. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus is called our eternal Father. So, we're being told here that He loves us with a fatherly kind of love, and He does that forever because He's the eternal Father. His love for us never ends. Even the best earthly fathers will at some point let their kids down because of selfishness, forgetfulness, some limitation they have. But that never happens with Jesus. There's never a time when His tender concern 
His daily provision and His loving discipline will fail us because He is our eternal Father. And fourthly, finally, He is the Prince of Peace. The Hebrew word translated peace is one that's related to the word for government. It's found earlier in verse 6, the government will be upon His shoulders. And then in verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of His government. His government is the realm in which His princely authority is exercised. And for this prince, as his rule is extended throughout the world, it's not marked by strife or by tyranny or by war. It's marked by peace. Luke chapter 2, just after the angel tells the shepherds, I bring you good news of great, great joy. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you. After that announcement, this one angel is joined by a whole host of angels who begin praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom His favor rests. There are at least three types of peace that Jesus brings. First, there's inward emotional peace. Then there's outward relational peace with other people. And finally, there's upward spiritual peace with God. In John chapter 14, verse 27, the night before his death, Jesus tells his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Jesus knows he's just hours away from being arrested and then crucified. And yet in that situation, one of unspeakable suffering, Jesus had peace. There's an internal calmness, and he said he's able to give that same kind of emotional peace to his followers. How does Jesus give peace to a troubled heart? He does it by calling us to put our trust in him. He said earlier in John 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also, that is trust also, put your confidence also in me. We worry and become troubled and anxious and fretful when our minds and our hearts are consumed with the difficulties of life. We're concerned about finances, about the future, about our kids, about politics, about COVID. So we're looking out, things look bad, and we get worried. Peace comes not by ignoring those things, not by pretending real problems don't exist, but rather by focusing our attention on Christ, the eternal Father, the, the warrior God, the, the one who can care for us, the one who understands us. Peace comes when we look at Him, focus our attention on Him, trust Him to help us, to uphold us, to guide us through whatever challenges we might be facing. As the prophet Isaiah says about the Lord in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed or fixed on you because he trusts in you. Peace comes when our minds and hearts are fixed on the Prince of Peace. That's inner peace. That's emotional peace. The Prince of Peace also brings outward relational peace with others. In Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, Paul calls on the believers of Colossae to 
bear with one another, which basically just means put up with each other's annoying habits and uh, ha uh, opinions you think are crazy. Just put up with each other. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Some people talk about the peace of Christ ruling their hearts in an emotional sense, like bringing internal peace. But we notice in the context, this isn't about internal peace. This is about relational peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your relationships with other people. When someone annoys us because of their weaknesses, because they have this strongly held opinion that we think is crazy, when they sin against us, the natural self-centered tendency we have is to react negatively based on the desires of our heart. We want something that we're not getting from them because of how they're acting, so we get angry or we withdraw or become bitter or we become passive-aggressive. Paul's instruction is bear with, put up with each other, forgive each other, and let the peace of Christ rule, control you at the level of your heart. And heart isn't simply where our emotions reside. It's the seat of our thoughts, motives, plans, and desires. Notice here, the command is not to create peace with other people through our own efforts. Rather, to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and our relationships with other people. This doesn't mean we settle for superficial harmony when, where underlying issues aren't dealt with. Rather, it's a plea to recognize the unifying work that Christ has already accomplished. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. The Prince of Peace has brought all of his followers together in a single unified body of which he's head. And as members of his one body, whatever disagreements we have, whatever conflicts we might have, they are not as significant as the unity we share together in Christ. We're going to spend eternity together with Christ, around Christ. And so we should be able to figure things out in this life. It's that unity as the body of Christ that provides the basis for Christians to pursue unity with one another whenever conflicts arise. And let's be honest, the last year and a half has given us plenty of opportunities to have lots of conflict as people have different opinions about how the country should respond, how the churches should respond to, very, to the uh, coronavirus pandemic. And sadly, sometimes these disagreements have become so contentious that they've led to broken relationships. But that should not be because the Prince of Peace has brought all of his followers together in one body. Brothers and sisters, are you allowing the peace of Christ to rule your heart in your relationships with other Christians? Not just Christians in this room, Christians that you know in your family or through in the community. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. That's relational peace with others. So there's internal emotional peace, outward relational peace, and then a third kind of peace that's provided by the Prince of Peace, the most important kind, is upward spiritual peace with God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What makes this peace so remarkable 
and so necessary is, as Paul explains just a few verses later, without Christ, we are God's enemies. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. The reason we were God's enemies is because of our sin, our sin that arouses His wrath. And that's where Jesus steps in to bring peace between a sinner and God. Later in his book, Isaiah explains how this happens. Isaiah 53, verse 5, He, the servant, Christ, was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. By His wounds, we are healed. This is the very heart of the good news. This is the best thing that Jesus came to bring us. We have peace with God, not by what we do, but by what Jesus Christ did for us. He endured the punishment and the wrath we deserve so that we can have peace with God. And so, at Christmas time, when we think about Jesus coming to earth and being a baby in a manger, we always have to consider that in the shadow of the cross. Because the baby born in Bethlehem grew up to be a man who willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And by doing that, he became the Prince of Peace. Friends, on this Christmas weekend celebration, this day after Christmas, I want to ask you, is Jesus your Prince of Peace? He is the Prince of Peace. Is He your Prince of Peace? Do you have peace with God through His Son, Jesus Christ? Peace is not attained by being religious, by going to church and reading the Bible and giving to charity. Those are all good things, but those don't bring you peace with God. Peace is not attained through moral self-improvement. There's only one way for a sinner to enjoy peace with God, and that's by trusting in the sacrificial death of His Son. So, if you've never called on Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, I would plead with you to do that now. This would be the best Christmas gift you ever got, is to begin an eternal relationship with God through His Son. And if you have some questions about that, you want to talk more about that, I would be thrilled to, ha to have that conversation with you after the service. If you have called on Jesus in that way, if He is your Prince of Peace, then brothers and sisters, rejoice in Him. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice that a little over 2,000 years ago, a child was born for us. A son was given to us. The government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Let's pray. As we go to prayer, I'd invite you to think of one of those titles and just lift it to the Lord as an as a expression of thanks and pray that it might be more of a reality in your life and bring you joy in Christ. Father, how we're thankful that you saw us in our great need and you sent your Son to rescue us. We're thankful that we can have a relationship with you 
that lasts forever because of who Jesus is. And Father, I pray that the more we know Him, the more our minds are filled with thinking about Your Son, the more our hearts are filled with joy. We want to be children who walk with You, not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, not with frowns, but with joy. Lord, help us rejoice in Your Son, the one who was given to us at Christmas. In Jesus' name.